Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Hi there, it's Laura Wasser. And if anyone knows how much divorce sucks, it's me. I've been practicing family law for over 20 years, and I've worked on thousands of divorces. Creating peace in families is how I lost my voice. From the top of the food chain all the way down to my very first case, which was my own divorce when I was 25. I wrote the book on divorce, or I wrote a book on divorce. It's called It Doesn't Have to Be That Way, How to Divorce Without Destroying Your Family or Bankrupting Yourself. That book became a bestseller because it presented another option for ending a marriage, one that doesn't necessarily include lawyers and one that leaves more money in both parties' bank accounts and less animosity in their hearts. We created It's Over Easy, the one-stop breakup divorce resource online with the same principles in mind. So welcome to the Divorce Sucks podcast, where we talk about breaking up, getting divorced, and moving on. Good morning. Good morning. We've talked the whole night through. Good morning. Good morning to you. Welcome, listeners, to the Sunny Side Up Report on the Divorce Sucks podcast. I am your host, Laura Wasser. I'm Johnny Rains, the plucky sidekick. <laughs> the plucky sidekick. Okay, this is the part of the Divorce Sucks podcast where we kind of do an internet roundup. We pull things that are in the news from the preceding week about divorces, breakups, weddings gone wrong, etc. One of my favorites from this week was written by Zara Stone in the atlasobscura.com publication. It is titled The Legendary Lavish Dinner Parties of South Dakota's Divorce Colony. Late 19th, early 20th century hotel in South Dakota was the place to be for wealthy and famous divorcees back in the day. And in South Dakota, it is apparently easier to get divorced. It's over easy, has not rolled out there yet. But some of these parties really do sound quite debaucherous and fantastic and exactly what you need after you practice the yoga, peace, (laughs) clarity, respect breathing and then drink a fifth of bourbon and do some revenge exactly i have to call it grudge grudge all right well some divorces uh, back in the the, uh, early 20th century and late 19th century (laughs) were just called homicides Well, apparently, Pauline Parasol, who was a uh, celebutante of the day, uh, her divorce was finalized in 1892. She celebrated with a large order from her favorite steakhouse, Delmonico's in New York. Servers shipped the food 1,350 miles to the Cataract House Hotel, which is this hotel you've been talking about, where she'd resided for the last five months. For extra dazzle, she wore a wedding dress to the event and distributed $1,000 in uh, and distributed $1,000 in party favors. Other hotels might have looked askance at outside food, but the cataract's motto was, we strive to please. Nice. Okay, the next article written by Deborah Kopakin from TheAtlantic.com, The Do-It-Yourself Divorce, How I Got Divorced Without a Lawyer, A Resourceful Journalist Journey to Divorce Herself. You mean divorced by herself? She didn't divorce herself, did she, Johnny? No, she, well, I mean, she didn't divorce herself, but she got divorced by herself. Right. And again, in this article, she talks about what she went through, how she educated herself. And 
That's why we created It's Over Easy, so that it won't be so difficult. It is doable. I get that some people really, really do not want to deal with attorneys. Sometimes you may have to, but what we've given you here are the tools so that it will be easier if you go through it and become what we call the master of your own destiny. Any, anything else on this one, Johnny? Yeah, really. I mean, she actually outlines her her step-by-step process in New York. She goes into the details of the cost and her divorce in the end was really it was about $650 got it next one from the New York Post rabbi owes $65,000 in past due child support tell us Johnny the founding rabbi of the Tony Hampton synagogue in West Hampton who was forced out in 2016 after he cheated on wife number five with the woman who would become wife number six he owes $64,594 in unpaid child support according to records obtained by the post the most interesting thing more than whether or not this guy actually owes the support arrears because he says he doesn't of course is that there's somebody that was the extramarital affair of a man or, or person who was married to his fifth wife and then thought to themselves, this seems like a good idea. I'm going to marry this guy because he cheated on five other wives. And now this is this is the man for me. And he's got all these adult kids, mm. you know, who he's not paying child support to. It's really a mess. In December, the state of Florida requested that New York State get involved in the case. It has also asked the IRS to intercept any federal income tax refund Shiner might receive and for the State Department to deny his passport renewal. Mm. Yeah, I think people are really going after him. Yeah. And it sucks for his son. His son really could have used a good dad and he could have used some of that child support while he was growing up. But read the quote. It doesn't happen every day that a rabbi has a $3 million Hampton house, said Brendan of his father, who keeps a city apartment in one Sutton place designed by Rosario Candela. There's- Is that a good thing? Which part? That it was designed like, by Rosario? I, I like or? the chip brownie. There's no excuse for not paying child support. All he had to do to save some money is not go to chip brownie. Well, you know, they do have a delicious truffle pasta. I, of course you know that. And perhaps that is the reason why she became wife number six, notwithstanding the possibility of future cheating or probability. And my favorite article of today's roundup is 2019 Notable Tech Innovations in U.S. Family Law by David Chartier on ThriveGlobal.com. And who is featured in this article but our own It's Over Easy and other notable new tech, which disrupts the cycle of conflict that comes with separation, divorce, and co-parenting, streamlining the process in the U.S. family law system. Um, One of the other ones that's mentioned is Co-Parenter. I'm on their advisory board. They offer really fantastic co-parenting communication portals for parents if they are not in any kind of litigation and can really help prepare if you are going to get into litigation, but really kind of keeps you honest and is fantastic. Co-Parenter is out of Canada. Uh, Alberta, the province in Canada, has really completely redone their entire family law system from the inside out based on children, based on child rearing and families. It is fantastic. I hope this trickles down into the United States because what they're doing up there is wonderful. Check out Co-Parenter, a great app that is a great service to parents and families that are going through transitions and moving into new and two different households. Well, thanks for your input on that one, Johnny. Enjoy the podcast. (laughs) This weather can be confusing for my body. I'm all bundled up because it's cold, but after running around all day going indoors and out, I realize that under my sweater... 
I've been sweating. So I've been able to keep fresh using coconut deodorant from Kopari. I originally got a sample from them and then totally fell in love with it. And again, beyond the rushing around in the cold, which we've been doing here during the winter, I traveled to Turks and Caicos over the weekend and was in actual like sweaty summer environs and it worked there too. Kopari's coconut deodorant is aluminum-free, vegan, and does not contain silicones, sulfates, parabens, GMOs, or baking soda. Whether you've got sensitive skin or just don't want a bunch of questionable ingredients in your body, Kopari's deodorant offers a cleaner option that works just as well. It's formulated with plant-based actives like sage oil and coconut oil, so you stay fresh all day. I mean, schlepping the kids around during airports and changeovers, being in hot weather, air conditioning, all of the things that generally would really, really leave a stink, none of that. And my 13-year-old son even borrowed one, and I had to buy another one because he dug it so much. Kopari's coconut deodorant goes on smooth, and it doesn't leave that sticky white residue that you get on your pits of your clothing, which is really awesome for me because I wear a lot of black. Along with their original coconut scent, Kopari offers a fragrance-free version of their deodorant plus two new scents. Beach and Gardenia are available now. Kopari offers a deodorant subscription, so you'll never run out of deodorant again. It's shipped to you as often as you choose, automatically and for free. They also give you a money-back guarantee, so there's no reason not to give it a try today. Just go to koparibeauty.com slash divorce to make the safe switch today and save $5 on your first order when you subscribe. That's kopari, K-O-P-A-R-I, beauty.com slash divorce. Koparibeauty.com slash divorce. Try it. Today's episode of Divorce Sucks is about balancing work with parenthood, which even in this time of political correctness, like it or not, can be more challenging for working women than it may be for our male counterparts. An article published in the Harvard Business Review last November, written by Y. Zing, Ronit Kark, and Alison Meister says on this subject, that a wealth of research shows that female leaders, much more than their male counterparts, face the need to be warm and nice, what society traditionally expects from women, as well as competent or tough, what society traditionally expects from men and leaders. The problem is that these qualities are often seen as opposites. This creates a catch-22 and double bind for women leaders. My guest today is a women's right advocate who certainly knows a thing or two about navigating the workforce as a female. She's a media mogul and the founder and CEO of Tina Brown Live Media, which produces the annual Women in the World Summit. She is also the former editor of Vanity Fair and The New Yorker, founder of The Daily Beast and the author of the biography The Diana Chronicles and the memoir The Vanity Fair Diaries. She hosts the podcast TBD with Tina Brown. She's a mother, a wife, and not just a boss lady, but legally she is a lady by order of Her Royal Highness Queen Elizabeth II. She's also a commander of the most excellent order of the British Empire. Tina Brown, Lady Evans, welcome to Divorce Sucks. Well, thank you very much, Laura. What a, what a lead-in. <laughs> my head is spinning. <laughs> Listeners, for those of you who have not heard of Tina before, I, the two of you perhaps, she's just been an absolute icon and idol of mine forever and ever. But until I kind of dug a little bit deeper, both last April when I participated in a panel at Women of the World and in expectation of being on Tina's podcast, I didn't realize all of the things that she had done. Tell us a little bit, Tina, backstory in terms of your career in in media and journalism, because it's just fascinating. I mean, starting out at 25 years old. 
Yes, well, I, I started out um, as editor of Tatler magazine in London, age 25. Uh, how did I get it so young? Well, I was actually writing uh, while I was at Oxford, and my uh, attracted the attention of various Fleet Street editors. I became published early, and then a, a real estate guy bought this magazine, Tatler, and he was looking around for an editor for it. At that time, it was a sort of like a defunct shiny sheet, and uh, I, you know, age 25, wanted to run something of my own. So I said, well, I, I can do it. I can take it over and make it into something completely different. So he took that risk on me and um, that's really how my editing career began and it took off like a bucking bronco. And well, Tatler- so, so you're, being, you're being modest because bucking bronco was a circulation of about 10,000 to over 100,000. <laughs> that's right and it, it, it really grew fast and became a sort of it had a lot of attitude. It, it was uh, very kind of uh, funny and, and, and attitudinal and, and just uh, a, a became a very kind of chic, funny magazine. And uh, it took off very high, as I said. And um, then uh, after a while, it was bought by Condé Nast Magazines, which is the great American media company. And they were about to launch this magazine, Vanity Fair, which they had had in retirement, that title for a long time, because it was defunct. And they launched it with an editor that was a complete disaster, and it was a deadly turkey. And when it failed, uh, and then when the second editor failed, they came to me and said, look, you know, you've done this turnaround at Tatler. Why don't you come and, and, and do this turnaround for Vanity Fair? And so aged just under 30, I arrived in New York in 1984 to take over Vanity Fair, which at that point had sort of slunk to a circulation of 250,000. And I was just jumped in feet first and redesigned it, re- reinvented it, reimagined it, really. And, uh, you know, we took it from 250,000 to over a million in the course of the next two years. And, uh, you know, I, I had the most fantastic time for eight years at Vanity Fair, eight and a half years, uh, working with Annie Leibovitz, Dominic Dunn, you know, Helmut Newton, all of these great talents that we, we kind of brought aboard and made into something, made it into something very, which you see today as, as a very, uh, you know, important magazine. After that, uh, Connie Nast also owned The New Yorker, and they asked me to edit The New Yorker, so I did that uh, for seven years, and that also was another turnaround. It was incredibly exciting. I took it over when it was really ailing and hired all the new writers and editors, most of whom you still see today. I hired David Remnick, the current editor, Malcolm Gladwell, who wrote The Tipping Point, mm-hmm. Jeffrey Tubin, you know, who, who became a, a terrific legal uh, journalist. Um, and uh, it goes on, you know. <laughs> then I went off and did my book, The Diana Chronicles. I launched Talk Magazine and had a terribly uh, tough bout for two years doing that with Harvey Weinstein, about whom I'm more anon. <laughs> and uh, that brings us sort of really uh, to the Daily Beast, which I founded in 2007, um, 2008, the uh, first digital uh, sort of route for me. And uh, again, exciting, fantastic five years. And um, and that brings me kind of to today. So it's... Um, it's been a big, uh, uh, it's been a lot, let's put it that way. <laughs> it certainly has. And in the midst of all of this, you were having kids. You've got two kids, a son and a daughter, who are now adults, correct? Correct, yes. I had my children when I was at Vanity Fair. Um, my daughter is now 28 and is a documentary producer at uh, with Jigsaw Films, Alex Gibney, mm-hmm. after doing several years at Vice. My son, Georgie, uh, had Asperger's, and I had a tremendously difficult time with him. Uh, he, you know, it was a big challenge. Everything for him was a huge challenge. But he came through it, and he's now working for a small NGO, and he's you know, living independently, and he's, he's, he's really managed to do a tremendous 
to mount given the challenges that he was born with. He was he was seven weeks premature and he had a real struggle, but but he's turned into a very fine, upstanding young man. So I feel like I got through. <laughs> Kudos. <laughs> got through. And, and again, I mean, we do speak a lot of, on this show about parenting and chapters and how to juggle things, especially with women, as I said. Um, you we have a quote from you that was, I think it might have been in regard to your over 90,000 Twitter followers. You said, I'm trying to be entertaining without being mean. Although sometimes there is a really good dovetailing of meanness and entertainingness, at least as far as I'm concerned. And I know we've laughed about it. But when it comes to the softer side, the maternal side, the parental side, how do you do all of that? I mean, Vanity Fair at that time was so cutting edge and so cutthroat in so many ways. Tell our listeners a little bit about how that works. Well, because backstage it was all chaos. It was all complete chaos all the time, you know. I mean, the whole thing about it, and I write about it in my Vanity Fair diaries, which, you know, I published last year. And that actually reminded me of just what a what a difficult thing it was, really, to be a young mother and trying to sort of fulfill my ambition. I mean, I was a very ambitious, uh, driven editor, and yet I also... Uh, was determined to be as good a mother as I possibly could be. I was very close to my own parents, my own mother. Uh, and, you know, I wanted to be the mother that I that she had been to me. And yet it was a constant push and pull. You know, it was a constant push and pull. And if the nanny got sick or if, you know, anything went wrong at home, the whole house of cards collapsed, you know. And it was always about juggling and, and trying to make that all work and feeling that some days I would go to the office and, and be a successful editor. And other days I would be a successful mother, but it very rarely seemed to happen on the same day. <laughs> Eventually, when I went to the New Yorker, um, the only way I felt that I could do the New Yorker, which was a weekly, um, and was going to be even more demanding than, than Vanity Fair, was to persuade my mother to come uh, to cross the Atlantic with my dad and, and rent the apartment across the landing uh, from us in New York. And I mean, it was an amazing sacrifice that they did that because they really didn't particularly want to live in New York and they didn't know anybody in New York, actually, except for me. But they were so terrific as parents. They said, "Okay, if this is what you really want and you really want to do this job, we'll come and and help you. And so they did. And they came and they it was a wonderful thing for my children to be able to come in, you know, off the school bus in the afternoon and go straight over to my mum's apartment and uh, spend the next two or three hours with her. You know, I'll I'll be forever grateful. She's the last both of them have, have passed now, but it was a wonderful thing they did for my family. Yeah, it really, it does take a village. Tell us a little bit about Sir Harold Evans and how he helped as a, as a partner and a father and a, and a, and a, and a husband. Well, Harry is just, he's one of those amazingly unusual people because he's a great feminist, really, when I think about it. I mean, he, he, he always encouraged me always in my career you know he was a great editor himself he was kind of the Ben Bradley of London he's 25 years older than me and he just sort of mentored and 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 uh encouraged and supported me throughout my my whole career really and but at the same time you know he was very driven himself it's not like he stayed home and was a household no he wasn't I mean he went off and he ran random house and he was doing all the things he does he also wrote books and you know he's he's continued to have incredible drive even now 
but he just always gave me the emotional support. So even though he wasn't doing what I would say full-blown sort of co-parenting, you know, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll take the day off work and be with the kids. Nonetheless, because his support was so great for me, uh, I always felt that he was there for me. And he's an incredibly loving and great dad. You know, he was fabulous with the kids when he was there. But, you know, it, it, it was all about just juggling these different improvised uh, helpers, in a sense, who, who would come in. I had a, I had a babysitter. I had um, a fabulous lady who, who 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 has supported my family for a long time. As I say, I had my mum. I mean, you know, it did take a village, and I was very lucky because I had that privilege. You right. know, and I, I never stopped thinking about, and I always have thought about, just how very very difficult it is. You know, for people who don't have that, and uh, it's why I was kind of irritated by the whole lean in uh, sort of uh, phenomenon because I felt that it was accusatory of of women who who do long to be able to say, you know, raise their hand and say, I want this promotion, but honestly had to hold themselves back. I mean, I know so many women who could have got higher and faster and further, but they had to kind of put their own brakes on and say, well, if I do that, who is going to be there for my kids? Who right. is going to take my, my kids to, you know, soccer practice? Who Who is going to be there to do the homework? Who is going to be there with my teenager rather than have her go off the rails and become completely unparented? You know, they, they've made the choice and it's tough. It's really tough. Right. And if you lean in too much, you might just fall right out of motherhood. Right. Is Precisely. It, it, and I, I know, and I have, have friends who feel that way. And I, I've struggled with that my whole life, too, thinking, you know, am I leaning too far in? Because what's happening back home? Was part of the, those feelings the impetus for women in the world? I know my part of it was discussing the emotional money panel, but I sat through so many other interesting speakers and panels. What made you decide to start this? Because it's fantastic and wonderful. And it really talks about all different kind of women and all different kinds of situations so that you don't yeah. just have one kind of mantra lean in. It's, it's everybody's experience. Where did you yes. get the idea? Well, I, I, I got the idea because I was on the board of an NGO, uh, a nonprofit rather, called um, Vital Voices, which is mentors and, and emerging leaders in, in, in uh, you know, all, global leaders all over the world. And I constantly met these extraordinary women from Africa, India, the Middle East, you know, who were kind of battling all kinds of cultural repressions and, uh, you know, forced marriage and honor killings and all these incredibly, you know, dark things that they had to get through in order to sort of make them their lives exist even. And I became very interested in them and thought, you know, how they had so little and yet they were achieving so much. And I kind of was resisting, I think, a little bit what I felt was the slightly dormant, slightly smug, slightly, at that time, feminism that was kind of losing its moxie, if you mm -hmm. like, in America. And also a sense that, you know, we're very privileged here and we just forget what it's like, you know, to live in places like that where our basic freedoms are just not even available. So it, it, it really inspired me to think, well, why don't I create a, a forum, you know, a summit uh, for them so that, that we can bring them in and people can listen to their stories? Because, you know, I, I've always felt as a journalist and an editor that storytelling is what wakes up people's moral conscience and, mm -hmm. you know, is the way to sort of enlighten and educate, uh, if you like. And, you know, just hearing somebody's story about what it was like and not, not preach and not reduce it to a, a series of lessons, but actually just hear what it took to get there. And so we did, and it just took off immediately, really, and also attracted women of substance and and sort of 
you know, profile in the world who, who wanted to bring their limelight to them, you know, so that we had from the very beginning uh, the involvement of Meryl Streep, of um, Christine Lagarde, of, um, you know, Angelina Jolie in those early days. And, you know, it, it, it from there it really grew. And, and now Women in the World is uh, really this sort of considered, I think, I, I can say, I can claim, you know, the, the sort of premium, one of the premium platforms for uh, showcasing women of substance and achievement and and uh, and, and global uh, meaning, if you like. And uh, it's very exciting. We're approaching our 10th anniversary in April, and it's going to be a very, very big year, April the 10th to the 12th at Lincoln Center. Amazing. All right, listeners, it's already February of 2019, which means you've already abandoned New Year, New You, because of excuses like overcrowded gyms, it's too rainy or cold outside, or Jesus, I just need a drink. I get it. But that's all the more reason to take control of your fitness journey this new year. I've mentioned before, my secret weapon has been Beachbody On Demand. Beachbody On Demand is an easy-to-use streaming service that gives you instant access to a wide variety of super effective workouts you can do from the comfort of your living room 24-7. It's not some new fly-by-night fitness company. This actually is the same company between P90X, Insanity, 21 Day Fix, T25, Brazil Butt Lift, Hip Hop Abs, Three Week Yoga Retreat, and more. They have the best trainers. You can get motivated by celebrity super trainers you know like Sean T, Shailene Johnson, Tony Horton, and Autumn Calabrese. Looking for the best programs? Beachbody On Demand has 100% effective workouts for all fitness levels, ranging from bodybuilding to weight training to cardio hit to yoga and even dance workouts. Beachbody On Demand has the biggest support community to keep you going. Join over a million people currently on Beachbody On Demand. The specific programs that I like are T25. I love Shanti. It doesn't require any extra equipment, and it's only 25 minutes a day. I challenge you, Divorce Sucks podcast listeners, to start a program with me. Let's get in shape together. Right now, my listeners can get a special free trial membership, including your new 14-day results plan where you can lose up to nine pounds in the first two weeks when you text DIVORCE, D-I-V-O-R-C-E, to 303030. You will get full access to this entire program for free, all the workouts, the nutrition information, and the results plan to get you super fast results and support totally free. Again, just text DIVORCE to 303030 and sign up for Beachbody On Demand with us now. Alexa isn't the only one with breaking news. Make sure to hang around at the end of this podcast for the latest breaking headlines on the AP News Minute. If you like my show, you're going to love the Lady Gang podcast on Podcast One. I actually was a guest on their podcast, and these girls are F-U-N. Join the ultimate Hollywood girl posse, Entertainment Tonight's Kelty Knight, actress Becca Tobin, and fashion designer Jack Vanek as they critique all things pop culture with some fab guests like singer, dancer, and judge on The Masked Singer, Nicole Scherzinger. Check out The Lady Gang every Tuesday and Thursday on Podcast One or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You're listening to the Divorce Sucks Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Wasser. I'm many things depending on the day, including a divorce attorney, the CEO of our online divorce service, It's Over Easy, and a mom. And if there's one thing I've learned in my many years on this planet, it's what makes relationships work and what makes them dissolve. Oddly enough, it can be the same thing for both. Money. 
If you're contemplating marriage, talk about it. If you're married, talk about it. And if you're divorced, talk about it before you consider casting your lot again with somebody else. Conversations about money certainly are not sexy, but they should give each of you some clarity and enable you to enter into your marriage with a better understanding of each other and what is important to you. Work and home responsibilities, joint or separate accounts, budgets, etc. are all subjects which should be discussed. Money is what brought my guests and I together at the 2018 Women in the World Summit in New York. She's the media mogul and British journalist who revitalized Tatler, Vanity Fair, and The New Yorker. Now she's focused on her Women in the World Summit and raising the voices of women around the world. Tina Brown. Welcome, Tina. Oh, hi. Good to be here, Laura. As we sit here, and I know we spoke about this when I did your podcast, TBD, being women who have reached a certain level of success, being able to help other women, being able to mentor, being able to participate and arrange these kind of events and summits, what do you say, what do you see about the things that we are watching every day in the news in terms of the Me Too movement, in terms of I, one of the things that you asked me during that podcast was this idea of, of dick pics, so to speak. You probably used a much more <laughs> elegant word. Why do people do that? It's stunning, isn't it? Yes. And when, I, and when I see the kind of volume of of sort of... Uh, I thought you were going to say when you see the kind of the, penises that they are, but okay, well, no, the volume of... of also <laughs> see the kind of penises. But also the kind of investigative sort of zeal that's behind finding out how they got there. You kind of think, yes, but why send them? Right, right. <laughs> I don't know. I think I think it's just, look, I guess, you know, when people fall in love, they get ex- overexcited and they really do think of nothing but that. And it's really a remarkable reminder that, you know, passion conquers all common sense, right? I mean, that it still does. I think it's absolutely lethal that that kind of digital communication of of anything to do with sex. I think it's just lethal. It's going to come out. It's going to be seen. And, uh, you know, from it, so much mayhem is wreaked. Uh, It's it's absolutely stunning. It is absolutely stunning. And, And frankly, again, that was a good explanation to say, like, that's just all people can think of as sex, but I did speak with my boyfriend about it last week and said, has there ever been a woman that's received a picture of either somebody that she didn't know or somebody that she did know's penis and said, boy, that really does it for me? Does that really work? <laughs> he wanted to know. I mean, I, I just would you look down and think, oh my God, just how do I delete that from every iCloud thing I have going? Because mo- <laughs> myself and most of my clients have the things either in the family room or the kitchen, which is this constant display of whatever is on your cloud go you're just rolling and so you've got pictures of the fifth birthday party and then you've got pictures of graduation and then shazam all of a sudden you've got this dick pic that comes up just can really well, be I guess it's, it, you know to me i mean maybe it's just that you know men have got this kind of absolute sort of thrill of being looked at and admired and it's a kind of it's the most macho sort of right, the peacock you can do i suppose Emphasis i mean you know, on it's kind of, i'm going to invade i'm going to invade your your iphone and and it's there here it is you right. know, take a big look <laughs> Oh, Who knows? I but know. It, it's, it's, it's pretty stunning. And I think just 10 years ago, such a thing would have been just inconceivable. Right. Well, that is an, a, another interesting thing. In terms of, again, getting back to some of, I know you, you mentioned Harvey Weinstein. As you've sat there, you're sitting back, you're observing, as you've always done as a journalist. What do you think of what has gone on? I mean, we all kind of were there while it was happening in some way or another. I think a lot of us knew that it was happening. It was kind of the way that Hollywood functioned. 
functioned at that time. However, things are changing. Is it going to be for the better, Tina, or will it be something that actually discourages women from getting jobs? Well, actually, I do think it is going to be better in that I do think there are a great many men who are actually as shocked as the, as women are. You know, I, I, I have spoken to men who are really good guys, you know, who are not sort of prudish men, but they're also kind of stunned that things had got so bad for women. I mean, they, they, they really weren't quite aware uh, or say they aren't. And I, I believe many of them, you know, that they really didn't know just what kind of crap women have to go through so much and hadn't been talking about. Right. And in the, in the case of Harvey, you know, I think we, everybody knew that he was, you know, kind of a Let's. incredibly <laughs> gross kind of, you know, character, a, a boy, all of those things. But I don't think that they knew exactly what was going on, obviously, when those doors were closed. And I, I, I think it's not right to say that everybody kind of knew quite how bad that was. I, I don't think that they did because the women themselves were not speaking about it, actually, except in a kind of secret sorority of other victims of Harvey Weinstein. I mean, they weren't leaving that office and bursting out and shouting, I've been raped. I right. mean, they weren't. Right. Um, and they, because they didn't think they were going to get any kind of a hearing. So people knew that the girls were going up there and they knew that he, they were going in to see but they didn't know, I think, quite how brutal and how violent it, it all became. And mostly, anyways, perhaps a few did, but not many. And I think it's it's been a huge wake-up call to the world, actually. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's still going to keep on taking its its toll. I think it's there. you're going to see more falling. And, yes, there will be some very uh, unfortunate incidents, too, in which, you know, certain men are perhaps overly punished for things that, that they might not have realized were as offensive as they were being. Unfortunately, I sort of do think it has to happen in order to do a giant reset, you know, mm -hmm. and that reset is happening. Let's talk a little bit about money. I know I've spoken about it in, in panels, both at Women in the World last year and other places. Why are we can say women and men, frankly, but why are women so unwilling to talk about money? Why is it so uncomfortable for us? Oh, God, you know, well, I'm, a, I'm a prime example of that. You know, I find it incredibly difficult to raise the whole question of money. I am so bad at it. It, it, you know, I don't know whether that's because I'm British. I was going to well, say it might also be because you're English. <laughs> I know. Well, I think it does because I'm always wildly embarrassed at the entire idea of marriage or uh, marriage. I'm always wildly <laughs> embarrassed at the entire idea of money and, and totally kind of unwilling to raise it and want someone else to raise it for me and under underbid myself and all of those things. So, I mean, why? I, I, I think it's, it's interesting. I, I've noticed that the young women um, that I know find it just as difficult. So yes. it's not like it's a generational thing. So that makes me much more worried. Then it feels as if it's genuinely a kind of a culturing, some kind of marinated DNA where we've spent so many generations and years and decades and eons undervaluing ourselves that it really is deep in our sort of whole psyche in an inherited fashion. It's very strange. And um, you would think by this time, sort of three generations of feminism in, as it were, that that would have been eradicated, but it doesn't seem to have been. And I think it's a prime area of vulnerability for women. And and again, beyond even failing to talk about it or refusing to fail to talk, to talk about it, the participants on my panel last year, Paula Polito and Carmen Rita Wong, and I discussed the fact, I believe it was Paula that kind of coined this phrase, we as women abdicate 
financial responsibility. Even once yeah. we're with someone with whom we're comfortable and we may have slipped to him what it is that we earn in a year or where we come to the marriage with and fine, we've gotten that out of the way. We don't have to talk about money anymore. We then let him do all of the investing, all of the balancing of the checkbooks, all of that. Why is that? Well, guilty again, I'm afraid. And, you know, the honest truth is that Harry does does most of that. And I'm actually trying, thanks to you. I mean, honestly, you you were a come to Jesus uh, panel for me. I mean, I I really that's what they call myself. me, the Jewish come to Jesus. <laughs> really, because I mean, and, and and you don't realize sitting there in the green room, the entire green room was in a state of kind of come to Jesus. It's so interesting. The men as well, by the way. Yes. There was a, a, a man backstage who was about to enter into his marriage to his partner, and he he's been like realizing that you know he's partner's much wealthier than he, that, that, that he needs to figure out all the stuff you were talking about, uh, the prenup, the whole thing. I know exactly um, who you're talking about. He's been in touch since. Lovely. But it, yeah, I'm well, glad if I could just guy, but, one but person open their was, eyes. No, it was more than one, I can tell you, including me. I realized that, you know, my husband's a lot older than me, so I realized, you know, wake up, you know, because I'm not going to have, you know, his, his wonderfully sort of watchful eye on our finances, you know, forever. It's going to just be me. And I've got to get with the, you know, get with it and really b- become much more involved. So I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I'm getting far more uh, involved uh, in terms of really paying, not just sitting in meetings, but really paying attention in meetings, asking you know the right questions rather than let him just lead lead the conversation. And I, I wish that I knew why women had this problem, but but it truly is a problem. And I, I actually was thinking the other day how much I would welcome myself just kind of financial real sort of financial uh, sort of tutorials on this kind of stuff. I mean, you were the beginning of it, but I think that my daughter, who's 28, would welcome that. And I, I don't understand why in college, really, there aren't those courses sort of offered, in a sense, which is to say, okay, this course is about, you know, running your whole finances, what it's investing your money, uh, saving your money, investing your money, um, learning how to really budget properly for yourself as you get older, what to understand, what what to, what to uh, be aware of. People are not... It's not happening. It's it's not happening. I don't know why. One place where it actually does seem to happen a lot is so many women who come to my office in my private practice and they're getting divorced and they say, I just, I don't know. I don't know what our financial situation is. I don't know what we have. I don't know what we owe. I don't know what we spend. I will tell you this. I say this to them, you will never be in this situation again, because once you've been through it and once you've gotten that education, once you've seen what might have slipped through the cracks, you learn it real fast. And so, yes, I would love to be teaching our younger women that these, I mean, again, some of it's really boring. I get that. But the basics of how to kind of figure out a way to budget and invest, that's huge. And not just to abdicate to someone else, because then daddy is going to take care of it. Um, We had an... uh, a guest a few weeks ago, Tracy Gray, who told us a lot about educating yourself about finances, particularly for women, and how important that is. And again, I, there's there's probably more romantic or sexy things to learn about or talk about, but this is one thing that I really believe is so important. And once you kind of get the basics, then you're in. Well, I also think, by the way, that in answer to your other question about why are women so bad at sort of negotiating for themselves, is that if you are much more engaged in your own financial situations, then you're going to stop underbidding yourself, as it were, you know, right. because 
because that immediately makes you more alert to yourself and you're much more aware of your financial situation instead of thinking, well, I'll just take less because, you know, it's less of a fight. You know, right. you, you, you become far more, I think, uh, sort of intellectually engaged with the whole subject and therefore more comfortable with it and therefore you raise it more easily and, and win more easily. And it can actually kind of visualize, once you have that shoe budget, you know, sketched out, you know exactly how much you need to make so that you can purchase the amount of shoes at the level of right. shoe that you'd like to have. That's kind of what I always say. To <laughs> now, people. funny you should bring up shoes. <laughs> well, I want you to tell us about the shoe. Is this oh, the Caroline story, the, the Princess Caroline? Oh, gosh, no. I mean, I, I just think that shoes are you know, definitely a, a little bit of an Achilles heel, if I may make a pun here. <laughs> okay, but tell us about shoes for a moment, because I know that your husband was in an interview, and I was reading in preparation for today, that you were able to secure an interview with Princess Caroline of Monaco. When you were with Tatler, yeah, that's right. tell that's us. Right. That's how we did it. Well, you know, it's very. It, it, when I was at Tatler, the motto at Tatler, when, when they had no budget and a little tiny staff, we used to say, you know, if you haven't got a budget, get yourself a point of view. It also meant that you had to be very resourceful because, you know, the powerful PRs who represented movie stars and so on were never going to give us the cover stories. You know, they were always going to give those stars to much bigger magazines than we were. We always had to kind of be very scrappy and very kind of resourceful about how we got to celebrities to ask our... our Ask them to, to, to sit on it for our cover or to do stories with us. So I, at that time, Princess Carolina Monaco was the sort of it girl of, of Europe. You know, she was like the the sort of uh, you know the, the the Kim Kardashian of that time. And I really wanted to get her for the cover, and we couldn't. The palace was just blowing us off and blowing us off. And my fashion editor told me that uh, she was he'd seen her in the Manola Blahnik store in London buying mm-hmm. shoes, and that Manola Blahnik, who's who used to be in the store at that mm-hmm. time in London. It was called Zapata in those days before it was Manola Blahnik. Manola Blahnik told him that she was coming back the next day to try on some gold sandals that she'd had put aside and she wanted to have, you know, to try them on and uh, and see how they looked. So I got the fashion editor to slip into the shoebox uh, with, with Manola's cooperation. I wonder whether Manola remembers this ridiculous story. We put into the shoebox this letter to Princess Caroline asking if she would be on the cover of Tatler. So she opens the gold shoes, she sees the letter, she reads the letter, and lo and behold, you know, cut to two weeks later, me and the fashion editor on our way to the, <laughs> the, the Pink Palace in Monaco to do the fashion shoot. I love uh, it. Helmut Newton. They I were, love it. it. Great. It was great. I mean, and kudos to her for kind of deciding that that was an amusing thing for her to engage with. Well, yes. And to anybody out there listening, should you ever want to interview me, that's the, the way to my heart. Just throw it in the Manola <laughs> box. So the information that we're about to get to keeps people following our Divorce Sucks Breakup Song playlist on Spotify. If you're not following it yet, go. Go now. Follow. Link to our bio. Edits over easy. But Tina, this is the part of the Divorce Sucks podcast where we do what we call the Divorce Sucks Interrogatories. So we typically ask our guests if they're married, divorced, or single. We know that you are married, so on to the next. What is your favorite breakup song? Uh, I love Sorry by Beyonce. Okay. I love it when she goes, middle fingers up, put some hands high, wave it in his face, tell him, boy, bye. I really like it when you do it with the English accent. I find that quite... Lovely. That's another great one to add to our playlist on Spotify, the Divorce Sucks Breakup Song Playlist. Go check it out. If you're not following yet, go now. Follow. The link is in our bio at It's Over Easy. What would you say, Tina, to cheer someone up going through a breakup? Mm. 
you're free. You're free. What are you going to do with it? <laughs> you sound like Martin Luther King. <laughs> free at last. Okay. And next, what rom-com, romantic comedy would you watch, could you watch on repeat? I would say Bridget Jones's Diary, which God knows is all about breaking up and getting back together. But it still enchants me, that movie. I've seen it a hundred times. And Bridget's friends remind me so much of my crowd at Tatler. That, for me, is a very nostalgic movie. I love that movie. So we're talking the first. Yes. Oh, my God, yes, yes. the first. Renee was fantastic. Tina, thank you so much for being here today on Divorce Sucks. Please tell people where to find the details of the next Women in the World event and how to best stay up to date with you. Well, you follow the summit and everything that's happening about it at womeninTheWorld.com. You can go there and find out how to get tickets and all the rest. And you can follow me on Tina Brown at Tina Brown Live Media on Twitter. Thank you for listening. If I don't see you, Tina, beforehand, I'll see you in April. Uh, Follow our breakup song playlist on Spotify. We've got a ton of exciting guests joining us on the Mondays ahead, including my pal Golden Globe winner Kate Hudson on March 4th. If there's something you'd like to hear more of or something you'd rather never hear again, tell us, rate us on iTunes. We're starting to get the hang of this podcast thing, and we're nothing without Y-O-U. So let us know what you think, and we'll catch you next time right here on the Divorce Sucks podcast.